Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james at capella university you'll get support from people who care about your success from before you enroll to after you graduate pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it imagine your future differently at capella.edu This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Everybody thinks they're on the right side of history right now. Everybody. And I think we're all wrong. I think the right side of history is to not be manipulated by the media anymore. I believe that 75% of the media and social media is all bad right now. And I believe 25% is great. Look, uh, I can order, I, I take 45 supplements a day. I can order all of them on Amazon. They're at my door in two days. Like, that's an amazing thing. I, I, I can read some good articles uh, online that people post on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, and, and I get a lot out of that. I can laugh at certain things. All that's good. How do you balance the massive bad with the slight good. And right now, everybody is manipulating. In fact, 72% of Americans believe the news and information on Facebook is untrustworthy. Yeah. We're all on it 24-7. We're all thumbing through endlessly. And it's all negative. And it's training our brains into being manipulated by the media 24-7. And I think the right side of history is not protests or Trumpism. I think it is not letting the media manipulate you anymore. Like one thing I realized though, 
I had an interesting, so it was six shows and the last three shows, I had a group of friends who were there for all three shows. And so I, being me, I didn't want them to get bored. So I made sure I changed 100% of my material oh my for God. each of the three shows, which is very hard. God. And and so by the third show, which was the last show of the six, I was, I was, I thought I was just using my throwaway material. Like this is just my scraps. Yeah. But in fact, that was actually by far my best show. Oh, wow. And so it made me realize <laughs> that like, oh, I, my, the, the material that I thought was intellectual and meaningful, but also funny and interesting and yeah. blah, blah, blah. It was all good. And it was good enough to make people laugh. But when I combine just my natural skills with just basic humor, yeah. that worked the best. Interesting. So, yeah, like instead of telling some complicated joke about masks and coronavirus, I told a joke about dogs raping each other, and that worked the best. <laughs> well, duh. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear that joke? Oh, but there was one time, this was a confusing one. I'll just, and then we'll start. I had, um, I started my fourth show uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg jokes, and this was the day after <laughs> she, she, died. she died. So I, so I, I said, I, I came out there and I said, you know, so I've been thinking about a few things to say about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And you could hear, and I expected oh, this, yeah. Yeah. you could hear, you could hear like a little bit of a uh -oh. too soon feeling. And I'm yeah. like, no, 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 no. It's not too soon because I'm not telling a joke. I'm just being serious. Like I'm speaking truth to power. I want to speak about this great lady. And so it's not a too soon sort of thing. And, and, and then I'm, I'm continuing. And then I said, I remember very clearly back in the day when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I were, were growing up together in the open mic stand-up comedy scene, and she was just the master of anal rape jokes. And she was just, she was incredible. She could just do anal rape jokes for an hour, and they were so funny. Like, people were just on the floor laughing. And then she could have been a great comedian, but then she got that degree, that medical degree, and for decades she was Dr. Ruth. And, you know, she could do anything she wanted. And then she became a Supreme Court justice. And so by the end of that, people were, were laughing, but I was still, and I did, I had done a nice intellectual twist around it and yeah. it was still kind of funny, but it was, it was, it wasn't as good as just simply telling like a dog rape jokes <laughs> and then, and then, a, and then a Barbie rape joke. There you so. go. So, and I thought I was so clever. Like, this is how I'm the only one in the country now who could do a Ruth Bader Ginsburg joke. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you're probably the first one. Yeah. I was definitely the first because I avoided the whole too soon thing. Right. In, in his clever way. But it still wasn't as good as just telling like a raw right. joke with a punchline. So, even though it was like funny, <clears throat> you had to like really roll with it to enjoy it. And, and so it took the audience a few seconds to roll with it. And then it, and then, Still probably wasn't the, the best anyway, but I thought it was funny. <laughs> which I, is the I key. was laughing. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so Phil, this is a good time, particularly after RBG, to talk about uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the election, yeah. Yeah. your latest survey results of what the entire country is going through. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing great. It's a, it's a weird world we're all living in right now. Um, I don't know how you wrap your arms around this whole thing. The only thing, the only thing missing, is a 269 to 269 electoral tie on November third. Well, there's it. There seems like 
I mean, so, so first off, uh, you know, obviously you're in the campaign business. Are you currently working on any of these campaigns? Uh, we're working on U S Senate campaigns. Are you allowed to say who? Uh, yeah, we're working in the, the, the New Mexico Senate campaign. Uh, we're working on the main U S Senate campaign. Um, and then, uh, uh, those are the two big ones we're working on right now. Okay. And then, um, do you think you'll be involved in the, um, presidential at all? Or are you like sharing data on yeah. any side with the presidential? Uh, I, I am learning from the, you don't have to say who. the Trump side, what's going on from how they're seeing some of the things we'll talk about that today. Okay. Um, but as far as my involvement, uh, it's just TBD at this point. Right. And obviously things are changing all the time, like uh, from a couple of podcasts ago, and you and I have discussed this because <laughs> I because I, I called you right afterwards. I I had some got some interesting data when I was interviewing Jim McKelvey. Yeah, and um, you know, and it's a very interesting it's a very interesting race because, like all the time, I try to look at it from a like almost like a game perspective. Oh, we're gonna you know, gamify it today. I'm ready. Yeah. All right. Let's. And let's by do the it. way, uh -huh. so we were on. I think it came out in October of 2019, and we broke down the Electoral College in that podcast. And so before I came on today, I was like, what did I say? You know, did I say something stupid and all this stuff? Uh, did you know that if you go back and you can get Jay to pull this, uh, you predicted that if Biden won the nomination, he would pick Kamala Harris as the VP on that I podcast. I predicted that? Yes. On that podcast? Wow. Yes. I'm impressed with in myself. In October of 2019. I, I, I like it. I should... Jay, we got to get that clip. That's that's a winner. That you absolutely <laughs> you, did. I, and I was listening to it. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, and a few things have changed. So for people that want to go back and listen to that interview, uh, we break down a lot of the primary. But towards the end of the podcast, we kind of break down the general election of the what if, you know, with whoever we didn't know was going to be the Democratic nominee. Um, and so it's pretty interesting. A lot of the things held true. Um, I mean, look, we're in a world where everything changes every five minutes, right? Ruth Bader Ginsburg just dies. This completely changed the dynamic of the presidential campaign. And we'll talk about uh, all the scenarios that have to happen, what it looks like, what it's going to take for each one to win. I'll, I'll walk through everything with you. I'm, I'm, uh, we're ready. All right, great. Well, let's, let's do it. So first off, before we get into the actual like political polls, you, um, you, you also do this regular survey. What are on people's minds? Like for instance, back in March when the lockdowns were beginning, um, you know, safety was on everyone's yeah. minds. The concept of local, you know, like in terms of, am I locally safe or are my local businesses doing right. okay? How can I help in my community? Yeah. Those were on people's minds in a way that was much different than they were before. Like, I don't, yeah. I think it, it's been a long time since local was the most important thing on people's minds. Yeah. And then later on, it was really mostly about safety. And then even after that, economically, it was about need versus want. And maybe you could explain what what those mean, but what's the latest, uh, what's the latest data you're saying? Everything's changing all the time. So um, just for context purposes, um, I have a partnership. My marketing agency has a partnership, with the largest data analytics and AI company in America. Since March, we have surveyed uh, close to, uh, I'll tell you the exact number, 29,263 American consumers. We've scaled it to 200 million American U.S. consumers in our database. 550 million plus connected devices. We're tracking 10 billion with a B online decisions every day and also tracking one, over a trillion search words every day. And then we're able to uh, put this data out. We, we've given it out for free 
to anybody for seven, seven different studies since March of looking at how consumers are looking at the marketplace since the pandemic went into effect. We also did two extra different start surveys on Black Lives Matter, the riots, and how that looked. Uh, so we've actually done nine surveys. I've spent, personally, I've spent over um, $100,000 at this point of my own money to put out this data to try to help business owners. This is not politics-based. This is business only and what's motivating consumers in this moment and we've given this all away free now and, and people are using like like you'll have to i always try to figure out like on the one hand there's data and it says all these nice little yeah. smart things but then there's the question of how to tactically use that to either make your life better your decisions better or your marketing better or your business better whatever so there, there's kind of that bridge that i want to make sure we we cross like given that i know that people want need versus wants how do i make use of that for my own life and my own decisions and so on. Yeah, totally. What we saw for the first three, four months during the pandemic was really three messages were working more than anything else. They were helping others, safety and trust. Like you had to express with your product or service, whether you're B2B or B2C, you had to come out and talk to your clients and your customers because they were all scared uh, in the pandemic. They wanted to help. We found in the data, just tons of data about how consumers were more concerned about their family members' health than they were about themselves. So everything revolved around sort of helping others, safety, and building trust. And by the way, I, I, I found in the podcast world, just as an example from my own experience, is that I even, and we had discussed this, I had even switched focus in my podcast so that instead of being evergreen, like I usually am for the past six or seven years, I started to be very topical, like, Here's what's going on in the data for the virus. Here's what's going on, yep. you know, economically, and just trying to kind of interpret what what I was seeing in the news and the data so that people could understand. Because I thought, I, well, no matter which news you looked at, it was biased. So you had to have someone interpret what was going on. Right. And and you, how did that work? Because that was great. about showing trust and helping others and safety right now. So yeah, and I, how did and that I wasn't, work for your brand? It, it was great because, first off, a lot of people have told me since that, hey, this was, you know, kind of an oasis of reason during, you know, of all a very confusing time. And I wasn't even being, you know, Machiavellian about it. Like I didn't know how it would affect my data or it might even have harmed my data because I wasn't being as evergreen. But uh, I heard from then podcast companies that the average podcast was about 20% down in views because people listen to podcasts yeah, on the commute to work or in the gym. And my podcast was up considerably. Uh, every single episode was more than the one before it. Yeah. That, so that, so, that, so totally that strategy worked. Yes. Um, all right. So, but what we found, James, in the data, and we had, you know, we have um, uh, a huge bench of corporate clients that we help uh, on the marketing side. We are marketing their businesses, but we always look at their customer data first to understand. So these messages are macro messages, right? When we work with a, a client, um, you know, whoever they may be, usually in the e-com world, but we also do B2C and, and, and um, B2B, we're also then, we're, we can actually overlay their own customer list or client list and then track those people all, by all the same metrics we just talked about on, a, on the macro sense to really dive deep into exactly what it is. So this is uh, a free look at the macro uh, perspective of customers in the marketplace. Um, and so let me, let me walk through where it is now because things have shifted again. Uh, and then we'll and, bridge that to the presidential politics yeah, and so on. Absolutely. So uh, our latest report that came out 
right at the beginning of September. We're going to have um, another one uh, come out in the next few weeks. But um, what we're finding right now are some things return to normal. Uh, uh, consumers are going back to physical stores, mostly grocery stores, uh, Walmarts, general merchandise stores. But they feel like they can return to those stores and stop buying as high a level as they were buying online with groceries. That's actually come down a little bit, and people are actually getting out. Um, also, we found in the data that people have returned to restaurants. Some uh, average American is going to a restaurant, one, a physical restaurant, one time a week. That's great. That's really good, right? The economy needs that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the restaurant part is going to hold because once the weather turns cold and people can't eat outside, we're going to see what do states do, what do governments do, and then well, we're well, going to see a little difference in the data on that point. I mean, I talk, I talk to a lot of like restaurant and venue owners just by my, the other hats that I wear. And I could tell you, first off, I don't know anybody going to hundred percent capacity right. just by the rules, yep. but even then there is still, it's still, people are just coming back. So it's not like you can really get more than 50%. This yep. is the whole thing about government restrictions is that people are smart enough anyway, even naturally, if you had no rules, you're still not going to get higher than 50% capacity, most likely, is what I'm noticing. Like, people are smart. They're not going to pack themselves in to a, a cubby hole and start spinning on each other so fast. Like, everyone's a little bit nervous and a little bit hesitant to go out, correctly or incorrectly, it doesn't matter. But right. the, the rules are probably fitting. This is why I don't really think people, this is why the rules are being struck down as unconstitutional, is that people would, are willing to do this anyway. Well, and there is the, the last a uh, point that I believe is positive progress. We are seeing for the first time since the pandemic broke out and the lockdowns went to effect, more Americans are accepting that there is nuance with this pandemic, that there are certain populations that are more susceptible to it than others, and that regardless of whether you're highly susceptible or have a low propensity of getting the virus or being you know, asymptomatic, um, that people have finally started saying, it's my responsibility, I can't live in lockdown forever, I'm done with this, and I take responsibility for the chances you know, going forward. And so you're seeing this, people are, are becoming less uh, worried about, the, pan, about the, the coronavirus, they're getting the coronavirus, dying of the coronavirus, or they've just accepted, they get it, it may be a horrible situation, but they gotta live their life again. You're seeing this, obviously, with elderly populations that are going out and being more public, um, they've accepted the responsibility. They're not putting the responsibility on the government as much as they're putting it on themselves. I think that's progress um, because there is nuance with this disease. That is a fact. Certain yeah, populations and, I mean, don't have, uh, aren't, aren't dying from it. Certain populations are more asymptomatic. And the fact that we have a one-size-fits-all strategy in California or in New York or in some of these other states is people are kind of coming to their senses and going, well, this doesn't make sense. It has no common sense behind it. And so that's another point of progress I feel like I'm seeing. Even if we had a second spike, uh, they understand that. And there's not as oh. much like concern over, oh, my God, if I get it and I'm 32 years old and healthy, I'm going to die. Like that, that's sort of melted away. I, I think that's right. And I think people are, just on the flip side of that, people are aware, too, that they can – it's not so much worry about getting it. There's also worry about transmitting it, which is why, you know, in, in some cases, the masks are, or in many cases, the masks are appropriate. But also I think the more susceptible populations 
are staying in and they're fine with that. It's just like for kids, like if there's, if flu breaks out in my kid's school, if it's, a, if enough cases are in the school, I'll keep my kids at home, you know? So, yeah. I mean, kids grew up, like my mother had polio. Kids grew up in the forties and thirties and twenties when there would be polio outbreaks yeah. and you would just keep your kids at home and some, you know, hopefully it worked, but you couldn't really prevent people from being exposed yeah. to these viruses. It's the same thing now. It's We have all these lockdowns and I'm not criticizing the lockdowns, but the initial goal was to flatten the curve. <laughs> you can't really eradicate the virus by, you know, locking down, you know, some percentage of the population, unless it's a hundred percent of the population for three weeks where nobody sees anybody else, right. all 7 billion people on the planet. Else, eventually everyone's going to get exposed to this virus. There's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, 100%. So here's the bad news and what we're seeing in the economy. Um, I'll go through some of the very specific uh, numbers. This is really important. If you're an investor, you're a business owner, I'd say pay attention to this. 69.9% of American consumers currently think the quality of the U.S. economy is poor or very poor. And another 20% of Americans think it's just fair, right? 10.1% um, 10 10 of Americans think the quality of the economy is good or excellent. Well, yeah, there is an exponential growth to part of the economy right now. So that, that, uh, that does make sense. 73% of Americans believe our economy will not return to normal until at least the spring of 2021. Um, 71.6% Americans are struggling to pay for necessities or just getting by. So 71%. The, what's that? 71%. 71.6. Just getting by or struggling to pay for necessities. So, and that, how different is that from pre-pandemic? Do you, do you have a sense? Oh, uh, I think it was a, it's about a 20, 30% difference. It's a huge number. Okay. Yeah. So the remaining 28.4% uh, of Americans feel like they're living comfortably and that makes sense again it feels like with the way the stock market's going up there the way the big tech companies are going like there are there's about a third of the economy that is just doing great and fine and like not worried about things right but there's this huge portion of the cur current economy that's either suffering or worried that something's going to happen to them well and, and that to it, me it, is foreshadowing something to come yeah cuz and let me just let me just add there's a uh, some math behind this which is that we did have a $2 trillion stimulus. So that money was sent to somebody. And but it so, came in and, May, right? Right. And that's so, gone but, now. That's been spent. Right. So you figure though a $15 trillion annual economy and $2 trillion of it in the stimulus. And there's some something called the money multiplier, which I won't explain right now. So it makes sense that a good 20% are fine. They got the money. Yep. And they're they floated a little bit. And I know, you know, some restaurants who maxed out on their PPP loans and other and disaster relief loans and stuff yep. like that, they're surviving. Yeah. Others aren't. And that's exactly what, what we're seeing, right? A couple others that really stand out to me, 7.5% of American consumers indicate uh, that they will make some major purchase in the next 90 days, cars, appliances. That's just a major purchase. You're talking about... <laughs> Think about that. 93, uh, 92.5% of American population will not be making any major purchases in the next 90 days. And then finally, 
95.5% of consumers will not purchase a luxury item in the next 90 days. And we've tracked this number since early June. This has trended in the wrong direction. You can go, again, uh, the, the data is available at winbigmedia.com. You go to the COVID-19 consumer research. It's free. Go there. You can look at all the data from each month that we put this together from April, May, June, July, August, and September. And then you can read, I have a crib notes, uh, if in case you don't want to look at all the data studies, you can read my analysis. But that's, you know, when we talk about luxury items, we're talking about jewelry, designer clothing, stuff like that. And so um, the fact that, you know, and I, you know, that number was probably at like uh, 75, 80% before the pandemic. Now it's at 95.5%. So you're just seeing. So that's, that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. Huge. Um, and, and, and this is the need versus want. So instead yes. of like going out there and buying the latest new car, somebody saying, look, I didn't even really drive that much the past six months. I'm right. going to delay buying a car for this year. Yeah. Uh, and then the, what I'd say is there are three factors that are driving consumer decisions right now. So you just nailed it, right? Need versus want. People are buying for what they need, not what they want. So if you're a business owner right there, right now, you better be positioning your brand or your product around the fact that this is a need, not a want. Like uh, before the pandemic, it was the complete opposite. People wanted everything. Hey, vacation this, new car that, uh, jewelry here. Like everybody wanted things. People and are by the literally, way, and by the if way, you look at the numbers I just sent you, hold on, if you just look at them, people are literally pulling out their bank account or their, their budgets and saying, what do I cut? And so you have to, so like we talked about this before, but we've got, you know, with all of our clients, we position them to be needs, not wants to their customers or their clients. Yeah. And so, and so, but, but what might be interesting here is an underlying thing where, Hey, luxuries are bullshit anyway. <laughs> no one really needs an extra diamond this or diamond Correct. that or, yep. or they don't need an extra 17 inches okay. on their TV screen. And a lot of a lot of wants were marketing directed and we're not as exposed to marketing when we're all kind of yep. locked down watching Netflix. The other way of looking at this, if you want it really easy, need versus want, is price. People, you know, we uh, we, we, we work for a big company, a big uh, national chain, and they when they brought us on a couple of years ago, they said, uh, we've been running marketing campaigns to discounts for years. It's not working anymore. People didn't want to buy discounts. The economy was so good for so long that they really, consumers, their consumers wanted a higher quality, a higher standard of product to buy. And so we reversed that, made, a, made the campaigns about high quality products. And, and they ended up, ended up, I think, within four months of working with us, had the greatest month ever. I'm, I'm saying this because that's completely reversed now. Uh, having discounts are incredibly important. Price, because it is about need versus want. Want is about quality. Need is about price. People, and the funny thing is people do want quality, but they're going to look at price first. And, that, and quality isn't even second. So the second thing is friction to transaction. So what I, what, where our corporate marketing business has blown up, James, is so many businesses have come to us and said, we are getting it for the first time ever, we're going to get into the e-commerce market. Um, and people are now realizing they got to go hardcore into the e-commerce market. We've had food companies. We've had clothing companies. Uh, we've had athletic apparel, I mean, uh, athletic equipment companies that have engaged us, come on board and said, we need to be an e-commerce company. And what friction- You know, what's, re what's really important yeah. for them too is, I imagine, is creating content. Because let's say you're yeah. a, an athletic wear company. Maybe, you know, since you're marketing online, yeah. you can create content around athletic wear, like 
I don't know, workout sessions where the trainers right. are in the clothes or I don't know. I think, I think companies and, and brands and candidates have to think about a little bit more about creating content that they're, they're giving away for free. Since so much of e-commerce marketing is about giveaways as well. Yeah. So the friction of transaction is this. Uh, I think CompuWare has a stat out. 88% of consumers, e-commerce consumers, right, will, if they have one bad experience on your website, will never come back again. And I, every time I tell that stat, uh, everybody starts nodding their head like, oh, I've done that. I've, got, I've had one, like, it took me eight steps to make the transaction, right? And, like, they're like, that's that just so too much. many. I can't take it. The other is that... Uh, on, right now, it's 68.88% of the of, of cart abandonment rate for e-commerce companies, which leaves about $250 billion uh, left out of the economy every year. So we're, I'm obsessed with making sure the brand on the e-commerce side right now, like more than ever, is completely tight, that, the, that there is no friction to transaction. It's like one, two clicks, and you're, you're at the checkout window, right? Look at what Amazon does. Amazon has built their entire model on friction to transaction. That's it in price, yeah. right? So their friction to transaction is so easy that that's why people are so loyal to it. And I would tell you that that's how you've got to look at it for your own business if you're out in that marketplace right now. Well, what, what I, would, I would even go not quite one step further, but along these lines, I've been seeing this trend get bigger and bigger of what is being called a commerce, like auto commerce. So I'm, I'm Amazon and I recognize, Oh, Phil every month has bought, you know, six uh, cans of Campbell's soup. And now the month's up. Maybe I need to send him an email. Hey, Phil, 15% off your yep, next purchase right. of Campbell's soup cans. So people need to, uh, kind of, you know, figure out the, the buying patterns of, of their best customers and kick in like an auto, like, hey, yep. just say yes, respond yes to this email, and we'll send you the next six cans of Campbell's soup. That's right. You know, it's so funny. So, again, I think we picked up like six new e-commerce clients that had never been in e-com before, and we're helping build them out. Um, all of them are getting online purchases, and they've never even advertised. Like, that to me is a whoa moment, Right. So we work for an organic coffee company or an organic food company. We work for a, a sausage and meat company out of Louisiana, and all of them are getting. Well, I'm ordering from them. All of them are getting online orders, and they like they're getting calls or emails into their company from their website, and they're like, "Hey, we just want to buy your stuff online." And so that is just like for me, it's like, "Wow, you've never even advertised, and now it's representing even like three to five percent." of your revenue and like, you know, this is what you got to do. So for me, it's need versus want. It's friction to transaction. And then third and a distant third is quality. People still have their mindset based on the old economy from a year ago. And so quality was such an important part. It's not that that's gone away. It's just diminished significantly. And so when we work with these specific companies, we're able to actually look at their customer base and then tell them specifically the order and how significant the differentials are between price, friction, and quality. And so and those are I the think in three terms, things. And I think in terms of quality, hand in hand with that, and by the way, this, this almost sounds like we're advertising your services. No. We're not. No. And, but this is just, this is really important stuff because even if you're like, let's say, like for me, I'm a podcaster and a writer, what I would say here is that hand in hand with quality is the narrative you tell. So previously people would see your product on a shelf and you could tell the story of your product in your packaging. Yep. Like, Hey, we're the vegan potato chip with bacon, blah, blah, blah. 
but now you kind of have to tell your story a little bit. You have yeah. to, you have to show the human side of your company. This is why we're making these products, or this is why we're, we're doing what we do, or this is why I wrote this book, or this is why I'm doing this podcast. You kind of have to tell your why a little bit more. And that's, that goes with the quality. Yeah. And, and again, this applies to, if you're listening to this and even if you're an employee at a company kind of, you know, figure out what your values are, what your vision is. And, and you could be more of a, what I call an entreployee. Like you could stand out in your, in your group or your, your company or whatever, and, and explain why your quality, cause you believe in such and such mission and, and so on. A hundred percent. And so that's what we we've seen from a macro sense of how the economy looks. And, um, you know, it shifted. Like I said, in March, April, May, even in parts into June and July, it was all about safety, trust, and helping others. Um, what we're seeing is safety has finally diminished a little bit because people are now accepting the responsibility of their own health and lives and taking their own chances. So safety just hasn't uh, converted like we have saw in those first three months. Um, so, but there's, it, it, so this thing is evolving. It's month to month. You know, um, I've written about this a lot, but I've said, uh, I hate the term new normal. I just say it's just new. Everything's new and it's month to month. And if you're a business owner, you're not following what the data says right now. Oh my God, you're just going to be screwed. And I think there's, it, as I just went through those statistics that we found in the data on the economy, so many business owners know that they're not like following the data and they're just hoping the next month is like the first month or the month before or whatever. But I'm telling you right really? now, it's just shifting every month. You're right. Like, I think people are in denial. Uh, like, like you said, I think the new normal disappeared in April and it became, right. you know, an, a, a new, a new, not, not even new. It's just like, well, yeah, everything is new. It's just totally different. It's abnormal. And, and, and by the way, if, you know, right now, of course, it's hand in hand with this virus. Mm -hmm. But if you had just told everybody, hey, let's say there was no virus. If you had just told everybody, hey, I want you to close your business for six months and all the consumers, I want you guys have to stay home for the next six yep. months. Everyone would have said, you can't do that. The economy will go into the greatest depression of all time, even with stimulus. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. But economically, though, that's what happened. You know, even the, even if there was a good reason for it, it's still, that is exactly what happened. And we would have thought it was insane in every other circumstance. I'm not saying it's insane now, but you do have to get, you, you do have to realize it's a new economic reality, whether you're, again, an employee, a business, unemployed, trying to find a job, starting, uh, trying to figure out what your side hustle is going to be that could turn into a business and, and so on. I agree. And so the one thing that I think is causing angst amongst Americans, right, is all the riots. Um, is the presidential campaign, which we can get into in a minute. You and I have both written that I believe, uh, and I wrote about this in August, but I believe we're heading towards either a civil war or a secession of states within the next few years. Yeah, and let's talk about that. That's my favorite topic right now. Okay, good. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And 
it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This sounds insane to talk about it. When you say, when you say states might secede, yes. if we had talked about this a year ago, we it, people would have quite sure. correctly turn the podcast off and listen to a smarter podcast. But the fact that we could talk about this and there's a greater than 1% chance that this could happen, I would say there was never more than a 1% chance since the Civil War of a state seceding. And I don't necessarily think the odds are 50%, but I do think they're greater than 1%. And so it's worth talking about this scenario. So what's what's a path to this? Well, so let me tell you, 
uh, through all of our studies, nine different national studies. I told you the methodology at the beginning. Uh, the latest study we did, 53% of Americans distrust the federal government. That's as high as I've seen it in a, in a long time. Remember, in March, we were talking about 10%. So we're seeing this really? massive Only 10% yeah. mistrusted the government in March? Yeah, because they were scared. And they wanted the bailouts. And they wanted what, the what government to come take in. What about in 2019? Huh? What about in 2004? I don't, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. I just don't know. I'm just know what I'm looking at right now. Because I feel like America in general, that's the whole idea. We right. America started by mistrusting their government. <laughs> yes, but the trend is as high as I've ever seen the trend go from, you know. I mean, maybe you could look at uh, uh, 1991 when we were in the Iraq war and George H.W. Bush had basically like a 92% approval rating, which was indicative of federal uh, – you know, trust. And then, you know, he lost to Clinton a year and a half later. So, um, but, uh, that's a, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty high number. Um, the national unemployment rate, right. Is in currently in double digits. I, I have seen recently that they believe that that number may get un, like down to seven and a half percent. If it does by the end of the year, I mean, by election day, if it does, that bodes really well for Trump. We can get in that in a minute, but, um, a third of the job force, uh, you know, like uh, California, for example, a third of the job force has filed for unemployment, including 46% of African Americans. Um, you, wow. You got, right now? Uh, in the, I think this is at the end of August, right? So civil mm -hmm. unrest uh, in the cities are showing that 69.3% of Americans either – this is the crazy one, right? 69.3% of Americans either believe the police should be trusted or they haven't really changed their opinion since uh, George Floyd's death. But that's not what we hear, right? That's not what we're hearing from the media. I, I'm a firm believer that the media is is – making this case better than anybody because they're creating the case. And and so just to kind of summarize, it's not like George Floyd didn't happen. It's not like this isn't a horrible yeah, thing. But I've I, talked I don't to feel some, like I have to qualify all this, right? Right. No, no, no. But I but I think though there's there's the way the way I understand it from talking to people on this podcast and, and different African American voices is that a lot of people feel incrementalism has worked, meaning things are better today than they were they 10 years ago than they were 10 years before that in terms of all the different statistics. But of course, if you lock everyone down and take away everyone's job and then you throw a match on a, a can of gasoline, it's going to set things on fire. And you, we've had unprecedented peace since the last civil war. Uh, or excuse me, uh, over the last, uh, this generation. So, I mean, if you just look at the civil war back in the 1800s, then, you know, obviously you had some unrest between the civil war and World War One. You had World War One, then you had World War Two, then you had the Korean War, then you had the Vietnam War, and then since the Vietnam War ended, now I understand we had the Cold War, uh, and I understand we've been in Afghanistan, Iraq, but people weren't forced into that. That was a volunteer army that went into there, so people don't feel these wars like they did since the Vietnam War, and so I feel like you've had this unprecedented amount of peace, and people just haven't had to sacrifice. In two thousand eight, when you know I I. Uh, was uh, best friends with a United States, a chief of staff to this United States senator. And during the bailouts in 08, he said to me, James, he said, the one worry I have about these bailouts is this is, we're the first generation that refuses to sacrifice for anything. And the government came in and bailed out. What happened during the pandemic? The government came in and bailed out. No one has had to truly start over 
or make the ultimate sacrifice and make their priority in life fixing their budgets, fixing their family, uh, safety of their, you know, the, you know, a war where they know they have to protect their family. Are they going to get, um, uh, you know, um, go to war or whatever? And so we've just had this unprecedented amount of peace and prosperity. And it feels, which is not necessarily a bad it's thing. A, well, I mean, of course, but people end up not understanding that. And this right. is where we go now. People are fighting over things that make no sense. Um, you know, we've had over 100 days of riots in Portland. Does anybody believe that those riots going on right now have anything to do with saving African-American lives? Or are they just driven by Antifa that is rioting? Uh, they, they executed a Trump supporter there. I understand I lean right more than left. So good. I'm uh, very upfront about that. Um, when you have in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago, uh, you have uh, two police officers that were, you know, they someone tried to execute, and then when they, oh yeah, what happened to them? So, so a kid came up to their police correct. car and fired a couple shots, and you see the yep. video of the kid just running away. Did those police officers survive? Uh, I believe they did. And the uh, Black Lives Matter protesters protested in front, or the supposed. I don't think. I think. I think most. Black Lives Matter or want change and want to do the right thing. But what's getting all the new or what's really driving the, the narrative right now are the outliers, right? So the protesters went to the hospital and started blocking the ambulance's path, not the of the police officers, but other uh, patients that were trying to come in on ambulances. And they were, they were blocking the driveway for the ambulance. A couple days later, uh, a a connection, someone that Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., meets with uh, from time to time, this African-American leader, came out and um, celebrated uh, the fact that these officers were uh, almost assassinated. Now, I tell you this. You didn't, you probably, you just asked. Like, tell me about that because you probably didn't hear about it all that much. But I just imagine, right, if that had been a Trump supporter that had fired on a cop. And tried to execute them. Imagine if that was a Trump support, a bunch of Trump supporters that had blocked the entrance of a hospital. And imagine if one of the you know Trump's uh, you know sort of political associates had came out and and said this is a good thing of what's going on right now. Um, the narrative would be totally different. And I think there's frustration on people on the right, but then I think there are people on the left that are going forward with this narrative and i think we are spinning out of control right now there is no more nuance there is no more what like no one i'm telling you if you went in and did a research poll right now and said should george floyd like, what did you think of george floyd 98 percent of people say he shouldn't have been killed 98 i mean it wouldn't even be close we are all in agreement on a lot of different things we're in agreement that maybe we should look at the way the uh, police forces are are funded and trained, and is there a better way of doing it? No one's going to be against that, but we are so polarized right now, and the data is so clear that I am convinced that November third is a reckoning day, man. And I think right, and yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, I just I want to. I, I know you're not doing the qualifying, so I'll qualify every uh, every step of the way. I think the the rhetoric on the other side on uh, is that that a language of that the right has a language of race division, which has kind of um, uh, created some of the more uh, uh, violent parts of these protests in some cities. Whether or not that's true, I think that is the narrative on on that side. 
So, so, so A, that the violence is more rare than we think, as you were just saying, because the media sort of talks about the violence more, and that it, even though a lot of these are in Democrat-run cities and states, the, the rhetoric is still coming from above. And that, that's, that's the narrative on the other. So either side has its polarized narrative. The bottom Without line is I think the, mani- the media is manipulating everybody. They're manipulating the right. They're manipulating the left. And they are doing it to get clicks. And they are doing it because either they've got a broken model or they're just it's which a is true. it is just a cold hard cash play. And it's which is true yeah, also. And 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 there's something, there's a there's a reckoning coming. I, I really believe it. I'm not being a heretic here. I really believe that there's something coming down the road for us. And I believe you know. Uh, let, let's say Biden wins. You, you don't. I mean, I, I would absolutely see Trump people in certain states going. Uh, that's it. We're we're leaving, right? If if Trump wins, I, I don't. I don't know if half the country could take another four years of Trump because they're 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 going to go crazy and they're going to there. And I believe there will be efforts to have a succession. Will I think it happen? I mean, I don't know. I think you could see the geographically our country look a lot more like Europe in 10 years than in the United States today. So, so kind of like, let's say EU sort of is like this loose, I hate to use the word confederacy because think of that people, people don't know what a confederacy is. They think of like this, just the Southern union in the civil war, but a confederacy is like the EU right now is a confederacy. It's a, a bunch of independently governed states that have some central governing body for, for, union related mm-hmm. activities like a military force or or whatever but every state independently has their own laws so so the difference between that and the united states is if the united states right now was a confederacy instead of a constitutional republic the you know new york would make its own laws and there wouldn't be as many federal laws over state by state so a federal law might be i don't know uh the the bill of rights is a bunch of federal laws that might be state by state rather than a, a government mandated thing. Thank you. You did that more uh, succinctly than I could. Uh, <laughs> I, let me sum it all up in the, a quote from the great Andrew Yang, who's been saying this a lot lately. Uh, we are a society that's data shy and, and argument heavy. And that, I think, sums it up. That's a good way to, that's a good way to put it, too, because you look at the arguments are nonstop on faith. Every time people argue on Twitter, like Twitter makes another penny and they're nonstop. I've never seen anyone say, you know what? You're absolutely right about, you know, X, Y, or Z. No one said that ever on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, so we ended up looking at, uh, we've done two studies on black lives matter movement. And what you're really finding is about 30% are hardcore believe that what's going on is righteous and necessary. And you're finding about 70%, even if they support Black Lives Matter, are not in support of the riots, right? Um, and we even looked at this in sports. So I've written a couple articles for uh, um, an online publication called Outkick.com. They're kind of a uh, competitor to Barstool. And we found out that 87 to 92% of all sports fans, blacks, whites, Hispanics, anybody, women, men, didn't want athletes to talk about wokeism in society. Like they didn't want to take, get it be preached to by a millennial or a Gen Z athlete. They just want to watch games in this moment because everything's nutty and they just want to, you know, forget about life for a while. And then they don't want to be preached to and told they're bad people because they don't want 
wokeism and politics to to come into the lives of, of the sports industry, right? And so now they're being told they're terrible people for thinking this. So everybody's just shutting up and not speaking up anymore. But the ratings for the NBA, the NFL, all of them are down terribly. In Major League Baseball, they're all down. And I can tell you, I, I wrote this article in June and I wrote a, a follow-up in August. And I predicted this because like I'm looking at the data. People just want to have a an escape right now, James. They don't want to be preached to. They they we're, we all share commonality, and we're not talking about that. And sports brings people together. It brings races together. It brings everybody together because we rally around our team, but we forget about that in this moment. And it's really really scary because the media is propagating this, and and they they are loving this. Like the funny thing is, is like what happens if Trump loses? Where do they go? Right, um, I've said this. That's a good point. I, I said this. If Biden wins, the mob, the woke mob, all the writers, they're gonna now think that Biden owes them. And I'm gonna tell you this: Biden's not gonna appease them very much. And guess what? They're gonna turn on Biden and his administration, and and they're gonna turn on the, on their own admin, on their own people. Because they're like, oh, you didn't go 100% all in on what we wanted. You only went at 35% of what we asked for. And so, you know, right now, Trump is their boogeyman, and it works. I get it. But they're going to turn on Biden if he wins. So it's really like this, nothing's going to get better on the political front. I just don't see it. Well, there's, 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 I, there's like three scenarios, right? So one scenario, just really kind of plainly, one scenario is there's a clear winner, and it is what it is. And there's another four years of, of polarization. And then maybe, you know, in 2024, there's a bunch of Gen yeah. X candidates who can come to consensus a little bit better or who knows. Then the other scenario is we have a complicated November 3rd. This is what I expect. We have a complicated November that's, that's 3rd with nice no winner. Complicated. Right. And <laughs> I, I would say it's actually an interesting bet to, to bet on what day the election uh, yeah. will be decided all the way up until January sure. 20th, where there's possibility there's no, I mean, there's a bunch of scenarios. One is there's no electoral winner. The other, and it goes to the house. The other is some states it's too close to call and you end up getting two slates of electors going into house. So there is both parties think they win. So you can't say that they can't, they won't allow that there's no winner. And that, that's actually complicated. That's a nuance constitutionally. That's not really covered in, in, by any of the amendments. People aren't really aware of that. I wasn't aware of that until a few days ago when I started researching it. And, and then, um, I think there's a scenario. And so who knows what happens then? I think it gets complicated, but then there's a third scenario, which it's so polarized. You have States like Texas and other States begin talks of secession. Yes. I think that's a very reasonable way to look at it. And, and here I'm the next uh, article I'm writing, uh, for my subscribers is basically what is the right side of history? Like everybody thinks they're on the right side of history right now. Everybody. Mm. And I think we're all wrong. I think the right side of history is to not be manipulated by the media anymore. And I, I, I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to tweet and that. I believe that 75% of the media and social media is all bad right now. And I believe 25% is great. Look, uh, I can order, I, I take 45 supplements a day. I can order all of them on Amazon. They're at my door in two days. Like that's an amazing thing. I, I, I can, read some good articles uh, online that people post on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. And, and I get a lot out of that. I can laugh at certain things. All that's good. How do you balance the massive bad 
with the slight good. And right now, everybody's manipulating. In fact, in our last data report, um, we were looking at, or we were looking at the secession thing. I put in here, in our one of our data uh, studies, seventy-two percent of Americans believe the news and information on Facebook is untrustworthy. Yeah, I agree with that. We're all on it twenty-four-seven. We're all thumbing through I, endlessly, and it's all negative, and it's training our brains into being manipulated by the media 24-7. And I, I think know, the right you, side you know, of history is not protests or Trumpism. I think it is not letting the media manipulate you. And I'm about to write all about it. It's my, my big big topic I'm coming out with soon. I, I think that's so true because, you know, from, from 2010 to 2020, I made it a point, and I've written about this, I made it a point to never read or watch the news. Yep. And people thought, oh, you're going to be uninformed. But the reality is I'm more informed than anyone because A, I'm not getting biased by the news. I'm listening to the, the guests on the podcast or, or I'm hearing, it's not like you're going to be able to avoid knowing what is important news out there because everyone's talking about it, but, uh, but not hearing it from a biased source allows you to do the real research on the real data for the things that are truly important. And, but since March, 2020, because I've been playing this role of trying to interpret the scarier data out there, I found myself reading the news to the point where I was getting more depressed and angry all right. the time than I normally would have in the past decade. Uh, yeah. I, and, and I mean, listen, I'm just as guilty. I mean, like two weeks ago, like I had, my wife basically had an intervention with me. She's like, you are in a total funk. And I'm like, I know because I've been on my phone. Like, I, you know, like I, sometimes I just want to escape into my phone. Who doesn't feel that way? And then I get caught up in all the manipulations from the right and the left, from good to bad. Yeah. And from what I should be doing to everybody, you know, having a phone in front of their face, telling you what you should think and what you feel and how oh, you need to buy this coaching product. How many people, how much of that are we seeing right now? It's everywhere. Like everybody's trying to tell you how to live. I'm just saying, you know, turn it off. Go be present with your family, volunteer in your community with all types of people, poor, rich, black, white, men, women, whatever. Learn from other people, but do it in person and just stop trying to have the preach moment constantly on social media because it's all there to manipulate you and it's all there for these people to make money. Yeah, I... And I'm a marketer. I, I agree. I agree. I think there's a lot of problems with what's happening so what are you seeing in the data now in terms of the election right. so we have a what do we got 45 days left 43 yeah, days left depending on when you put this out uh so i'll start out with something i know you're gonna love all right you ready because this is you and i have some offline conversations on this specifically so it'd be fun to walk through it um right now if you just go by sort of the aggregate of all the public polling, I'm going to talk about electoral vote count because if you say, oh, Trump's at, or uh, Biden's at 50 and, and Trump's at 42, like, not, that doesn't mean anything. It's electoral vote count. That's all right. that really matters at this point. So if you aggregate all the public polling, now I'm not saying all of it's accurate if you aggregate it, um, there, the prediction is uh, Biden has 353 electoral votes and Trump has 185 in the bank. That's going by what polls? The aggregate of all pub public polling that's out there right now in each of the states. All right, and could I, could I add some some yep. data to this? Is that for the first time, and I literally just looked, and for the first time in like three months on predicted uh, you're, org, you're, which is you're, the prediction market. All right, you're, you're, go, you're, you're like then. jumping in on me. So 
go, go uh, for it. The aggregate of the prediction markets has it at Biden 200, 290 electoral votes to Trump 248. You need 270 to win. But and by by the way, I just this is what I want to add. I you're saying 290 to yep. 248 Democrat Republican. Um for 3 months it was 312 to 212 Democrats Republicans. This is the first time I've seen a change yes, in months. Yes, that's right. So they got it at 290 to 248. So I think that is actually probably the prediction markets for the first time ever. I'm going to tell you this. I really believe if you look at there's so much inaccurate polling right now that I think you got to look at the prediction markets and then you got to look at the methodology going on with these individual polling polls in different states, like specific states. But for me, that's really important. Now, if I'm to tell you, like, I, I kind of played around with the math, and I would tell you that it, it, it really is going to come down to Pennsylvania. Like, Pennsylvania is, the, is ground zero in this election. Now, when we look back on this in, in November or in two years when they finally decide the election in two years, um, I, it, Pennsylvania may not be ground zero, right? But if you're looking at it right now, uh, it, it really, if Trump is going to win or Biden's going to win, it's going to come down to Pennsylvania. And uh, again, I think in the prediction markets right now, Trump has an 84% chance of winning the presidency if he wins Pennsylvania. And Biden has a 96% chance of winning the presidency if he wins Pennsylvania. So, And, and, on, the, and on predicted, Biden they have at 63 cents and Trump they have at 38 cents. So the... But uh, Biden's down from like let's say a high of seventy four cents, uh, and in the past ninety yeah, days. Yeah, it's a good bet. My bet week- would be if you want to, you know, find value in the marketplace of betting Pennsylvania and Trump because the Trump people are going to go all in. And I know this; they've already not. So there's certain factors that I think give Trump advantages, and certain mar- markers I believe give Biden advantages. We can go through all of that, but um, uh, I I think it's uh, I, the Trump team knows that they they got to take pennsylvania and uh and then if they if they win pennsylvania then they just got to pick up uh, this is all things being equal there's a thousand different scenarios but this is uh assuming trump wins north carolina and florida if he wins florida north carolina and pennsylvania it looks really good for him because he really only needs to win one other sort of uh you know sort of uh toss-up state uh, of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Arizona, Nevada. He's just got to win one. Why, why do you think he's been campaigning so much in Arizona and Nevada? So internally, their team believes they're going to win Arizona, even though public polling shows him down uh, either pretty good mark or right within the margin of error. Uh, but the Arizona team, uh, Trump team, really do believe that they are going to win Arizona. Let me ask you this. Are so so Bloomberg announced he was going to spend $100 million Florida. in Florida for yep. Biden. And um, and again, we're not talking politically. This is just the game of it. Um, I'm noticing on predicted Florida has switched from blue to red yep. on the prediction yep. markets. And uh, yeah, tell me why. And, and tell me, do, do, uh, does $100 million worth of ads matter no, anymore in the age it, of Twitter? It would have mattered six months ago. It would have mattered four months ago. It mattered three months ago. But we're talking about in totality of the the whole country, right? Not just Florida. We'll get into Florida. We're talking about basically between 93 and 95% of people have made up their mind. So you're about to spend, it's talk about just, this is what drives uh, businessmen that run for office crazy is that you're going to run a hundred million dollars worth of ads 
to sway maybe a couple million people, but I'm saying like out of you're going to run these ads to 200, 300 million people <laughs> and your efficiency rate is like so low, right? There's so many few people you're actually swinging by those ads. Um, that it is just so inefficient. Like uh, Bloomberg's money, I just don't know if it makes that big a difference this late in the race. I think so many people are already locked in on who they're going to vote for. Um, the reason that Trump... Well, could, could he target more specifically? Like could he, instead of TV ads, could he do Facebook yeah, ads? I'm sure or he'll, streaming he'll do ads it. I, or... just don't, I just think it's such a... People are locked in. So I believe the reason that Trump is doing better in Florida right now is the Hispanic vote. I mean, he is... his numbers with within with hispanic voters especially cuban americans is, is is high as they've ever been and so uh when i was on with you we were breaking down the electoral college a year ago um i said that the the key to the whole election was the working class white voters right whether that be in uh wisconsin michigan pennsylvania like the the working class white voters would decide this election well, what we found was that the working class white voters have have swung somewhat to uh, to Biden, not not in a vast majority, but right because all those states are are listed as blue now. The ones right. you just mentioned. But here's the difference. So, in order for Trump to to win one of those states or two of those states, he's got to raise his the number of working class white voters that are going to support him. But w one unexpected uh, part of this is the minority voting is uh, Trump is getting more um, between African-Americans and Hispanics. He's getting more percentage of that vote than any Republican has in the history of American politics. And so uh, if he now, do I think, do I think that Biden and his team are going to start targeting African-Americans and Hispanics and drive down those numbers by election day? Yes, absolutely. They, they, uh, Biden is incredibly weak with Hispanics right now. Um, it, it, he's winning Hispanics, but traditionally, right, you get a much higher percentage of Hispanics. Um, and if if uh, if Trump can, so Trump got about twenty nine percent of Hispanics in two thousand sixteen, and right now he's around thirty seven percent of Hispanics. If you think about that number, that is a massive number. Do I think that holds? No, I think he it'll it'll settle down a little bit. Um, Trump got 8% of the African-American vote. Uh, right now, he's getting around 15%. That is a double number. No Republican has ever received that much vote within the African-American vote. Could that have a massive impact in a, in a state like uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, and, and then finally, just looking at sort of these, uh, the Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, the Wisconsin, Minnesota and Pennsylvania, that's 80% of the vote is working class white voters. I mean, maybe it's not all working class, but it's 80% white voters. Let me, let me clarify that. Many of, most of them are working class white voters. And so Trump knows this. That's why they put really all their energies into Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Uh, they believe that gives them the best shot of winning those states. Uh, Trump is doing extraordinarily well with with Hispanics in Florida. And if he can just get enough African-American vote in some of these other states, it may make up the difference with some of those working class white voters. So so, so going forward, so, okay, by the way, so let's say he gets Florida and Pennsylvania. And Obviously, going? those are going to be right down yep. to the wire. Like those are going to have totally. recounts. And uh, there's going to be court cases, and we haven't even addressed the RBG stuff yet. But what's 
so so a what's a scenario and then kind of in a different direction what what should be narratives like what should biden do between now and the election if he wants to win what should trump do between now and the election if he wants to win what do you think will happen to the senate which is a little bit more in play than the house yeah we'll talk about the senate in a second i can walk through a lot of that with you um so for biden to win well first of all biden has a couple advantages let me just walk through his advantages he's got a bigger pool of voters right he just does. He has a bigger pool of voters, especially in the key states, that if he can just turn out, uh, he has the advantage there. Um, he is doing much better than Hillary with working class white voters, hands down. Um, his base. So so you were saying Trump needs yes, working class white correct. voters, but Biden is doing well, better than oh, Hillary with better, them right much now. Much better. And that was always the concern with the Trump team. Like, um, that Biden, uh, if Biden got the nomination, that would that would help him the most. Ninety six percent of Democratic voters are very motivated. That that number typically is in the high eighties. This year, it's ninety six percent. That's really good. Um, and what does he need to do? Well, he's kind of doing it. You're saying this. Uh, they're castigating him as a racist. Um, they're uh, highlighting Trump fatigue. And they're surrounding it around the COVID response and the deaths around COVID, um, COVID-19. So that's the, those are the things that you're seeing them do right now. And that's where uh, their focus is all in on. It, it is. So so in the debate, can they handle a debate that's a little bit more, uh, you know, both sides are basically going to be saying they did everything yep. they could and the other side did poorly. Who, who wins that argument in the debates? See, you're going strictly on the, the issue. What about the personality side of it? What if yeah. Biden gets tongue-tied or can't remember something? And what if um, you know Trump eviscerates him and turns off women? I don't know. I, I look, we're we're coming up on these debates. They're going to be the most fascinating debates in the history of American politics. I just don't see how anything is, is going to be as watched as this as the debates that are coming up. I, they should make a pay-per-view. Like, think about the television networks, how much they'll make. But, you know, here, here's what I kind of think, is that everybody sort of assumes that Biden is just senile and he's not, and he should avoid the debates. And I think Biden's probably going to sur surprise on the upside how lucid he is in yeah. the debates. I think he, because he, he honestly, to be honest, he surprised me in 2008 in the VP debates against Sarah yeah. Palin you know, where neither side really won. I mean, that was probably Sarah Palin's fault, but also to Biden's credit, because he's not been a known debater. But uh, uh, so I think he'll surprise to the upside. And I think, I don't know, I don't have any opinion on what Trump's going to do. Like yeah. what, what should so Trump, Trump what, what should his narrative be? Clear. Um, uh, his, the, he's got to have a vaccine coming out. He's teasing it right now. So a vaccine comes out for the election, it will help him. How big will it help him? Look, we're, we're talking about minuscule numbers right now, James. So uh, people are locked in one way or the other. So the vaccine isn't going to like sway some hardcore Democrat. That's not going to happen. But it could sway someone that maybe voted for Trump in 16, maybe now is going to vote for Biden, and then the vaccine comes out, and then they go, you know, actually, like, he is trying to help. You know, it could sway them back. Um, the economy improves. Uh, job job numbers keep going up. Um, the lack here's one big problem for Biden. There's a lack of enthusiasm for Biden. So while 96% of the Democrats are motivated to vote right now, 
Uh, hold on, I've got a great. It just came out from a, a poll in the Morning Consult. Um, Forty-three percent of Biden supporters have a lot of enthusiasm for Biden. Think about that. So they have a very, uh, they're very much motivated because they hate Trump, not because they like Biden. The reverse is happening with Trump. It's a complete reverse, right? Um, you've got people that are all in on, on Trump uh, and very little of them are fear of Biden. So um, you know, you've got a, that, that sort of lack of uh, motivation to vote for Biden itself could uh, absolutely help Trump if on election day they can't really – the Biden folks can't turn those people out. Uh, l- then, l- l- let me – in terms of yeah. narrative, let me ask you this. Who who does the nation think is is most related to uh, the violence that we've seen in, in cities? You know, because both sides are pointing fingers at the other side. I haven't looked at who's to blame. Hmm. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, you can go look at our studies. I, I don't – you know, there, it's more of a just distrust of everything. Okay. Um, does and, that fall on Trump? Probably more, probably. But people are locked in. Whether uh, whether they think he's right or wrong, it's kind of along the lines of how they're going to vote. Like, there's just not much middle anymore, right? Um, finally, um, you know, I will say, all right, so a couple of other advantages that Trump has, which is um, they his ground game. They, they are knocking – I think they've knocked on 10 million doors his campaign. Biden has admitted they will not be knocking on very few doors. Like they haven't knocked on any. Their ground games are too different. That probably gives Trump about a 1% to 2 percentage increase in whatever you're seeing right now in election. A ground game is effective? For, it's like a – think about it in a football game metaphor. It's like kicking a field goal. It's not a touchdown. It's like kicking a field goal. Make sense? Yeah, and, and but are people – Again, since most people are decided, are they kind of selectively – do they know which doors to knock on for the people yes. on the fence? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. You don't knock on a – you know exactly what doors you're knocking on. You don't knock on doors that aren't registered to vote, and you're also not knocking on doors that you know won't support you on election day. Okay. So they've knocked on – and I think in, in, in Pennsylvania alone, they've knocked on a million doors in the last few months, the Trump team. So – just understand, I'm not talking, this is not going to be like a 10-point swing or anything like that. could be a point or two. Also, two, uh, a huge new study just came out um, called, you know, it's kind of like the silent majority. So uh, the silent majority of Republicans that don't want to give their opinion about uh, the election because they're afraid they're going to be canceled was around 11 to 12%. Independent voters was around 8 to 9%. And Democratic voters that didn't want to give their opinion was around 4 to 5%. So what that tells me is there is a significant – just like in 16, you were seeing this sort of uh, silent voter that does not want to tell uh, someone that calls their phone that they don't know who it is and give them their opinion on politics right now. They're afraid to do it. They think they're going to get in trouble. And so they're not voicing their opinion. Do I think that is some big massive swing? No, but it's ta- it could be two points. could be two points or three points in Pennsylvania or Florida, or North Carolina. So I think whatever polling you see, you need to add about three points to Trump in some of these states because there are people that are not coming out, and the Trump people are working overtime to turn out everybody they possibly can that's going to support them. You're seeing minority uh, and Hispanic and African-American vote for Trump at a higher level than we've seen before. And here's the interesting thing. Again, this is a new study by the Morning Consult. The voters that are turning towards Trump amongst Hispanic 
and African Americans are college educated voters. Hmm. Not and the 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 voters that are turning uh, that have had a downswing for Trump uh, with whites are non college educated voters, which you would think like that like all of that doesn't really make sense for what we've seen in the past, but that's where we are now. So I think those Oh, and then one more thing. The the Republican Party, I told you, Biden is at a 90 – the Democratic Party is 96% motivated to vote. Uh, the Republican Party is at 98% motivated to vote. Those two numbers are the highest numbers in the history of American politics right now. So we're going to probably see the biggest voter turnout by far. Yeah, I think we had 137 million votes in 2016. So <laughs> we'll see what that goes. 2018 – a democratic landslide, right? The midterms, Democrats won like crazy, right? Um, that was the highest, I believe that was the highest midterm turnout in the history of American politics. So um, I would expect you will see that this time around too. At Capella University, You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. All right, so so Biden's narrative is to keep people focused on the coronavirus and the response. Yep. Probably Trump's narrative is to talk about how the coronavirus is, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with a vaccine and um, economy, direction is more important than state. Yep. So the direction of the economy is up since the, the, the bottom and it's gonna continue to go up and, he, and he'll express that it's gonna continue to go up, of course, if you reelect me and Biden's gonna say, you know, the economy needs to probably be less fragile than it was. So elect me. So the next time there's a disaster that happens, we have a better response. Like he'll have to tell that story. So here are the one, here are the unknown things to watch for that we don't know yet. How what's gonna how it's gonna be affected? The debates, right? We got three debates plus a VP debate. How much will that swing the election? They'll be the most watched debates ever. So I don't know, but it's gonna have an impact. Uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg fallout. Um, are Republicans trying, if they are able to push through a nominee and get them voted on before or even after the election in the lame duck session of Congress, how does that impact voters that say they, you know, does it negatively impact Trump? Uh, or does it motivate, the Republicans think it's going to motivate their base, but the Democrats think it's going to motivate their base. I don't know how many, you can be any more motivated on either base, but that's what they think. Does a vaccine come out? That could have a huge impact. We just don't know. Trump's teasing it. We'll see what happens. Uh, Last-minute scandals and dirty tricks, right? So uh, the Access yeah, Hollywood tape down. of 2016 was an unknown factor that happened in the last three and a half weeks of the election. That was in the last three weeks only? Yeah, it happened in October. Oh, the, the, that, That's the grab them by the... Yep. 
Oh, I thought that was like in August. No. Um, so that's the the question is, what you know, like in just in the last few weeks, you've seen the Michael Cohen book come out. You've seen the Bob Woodward book come out. You saw the story about Trump saying. Uh, he, yeah, the veterans. he didn't, yeah, about veterans. Like, there's something every week just being, th- everything's being thrown against the wall right now. Like, it is just, it is just like slaughter or be slaughtered. Like, that's what everything is happening right so, now. So, let me summarize that. So, last minute scandal. Yep. So, these are the things that can, are the, un, the, the known unknowns. Last minute scandal, RPG fallout, uh, debates. What, what else did you say? Vaccine and economy. Or we kind of know yeah. the direction yeah, that's going. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, I think the economy would be a distant whatever fifth or sixth, whatever. How many? What, what about violence? So I think one of the reasons that Pennsylvania has now um, swung back into that toss-up, even though Biden's it's been leaning Biden for so long, is because there have been riots in Pennsylvania lately. So I think the riots absolutely helped Trump. We're seeing that um, in in the numbers of swing voters. We're talking about a very small group of people, right? Between, I don't know, 5 and 10% of voters, every state's a little different. Um, but the violence, depending on, yeah, uh, what people are seeing, why they're paying attention to on the news, what news is showing it, what's not. This is why when someone is uh, tries to execute cops, most of the networks don't show it because there's a narrative and everybody's got their narrative. Whatever network you want to choose is going to promote your narrative. Okay, so so and all these I, I, other than last minute's well, I guess last minute scandal, RPG fallout, debates, vaccine, and violence. We will have some more um, color on it by you know no nothing meant by that word, but we'll, we'll have some more um, light on that between now and the election. Obviously, all those things. More. Yeah. So so like RBG, let's take that uh, as an example. So okay. right now the Supreme Court, if you say if you assume John Roberts is on the left side, which is an unknown also, I think where John Roberts is, that we have a Supreme Court that's 4-4, a tiebreaker. Obviously, Republicans want to nominate and, and vote someone in. Democrats don't. Everyone's using their narrative on who wished what, when, and whatever. Uh, there's really no constitutional precedent one way or the other. There's a precedent that Republicans kept out Merrick Garland in the last year of Obama's Obama's administration. Um, but you know, obviously the, the Senate votes in the Supreme court nominee Senate's controlled by Republicans. So, you know, they could do whatever they want. What, what do you think is going to happen? Okay. So first of all, the, a couple, when the Democrats had the majority under Clinton, I mean, under Clinton, under Obama, they eliminated the filibuster. So this is only being, uh, the, this ability of Republicans to pass a nominee, uh, if Trump were to lose in that lame duck session, is only there because Democrats passed a, a, a the for judges uh, they took away the filibuster. So that rule is in place because the Democrats. That's one. Two. I'm just going to give the. I'll give you the Republican side. I'll give you the Democratic side. So that's on the Republicans. They're like, well, the Democrats created this rule, so we can do whatever we want. Two. Yes, Merrick Garland is a great example. It also should be looked at the other way around. Obama was trying to push through a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of his administration. He didn't say, well. Uh, maybe I should just wait until I'm out of office and let the next president pick the, the make the pick, right? So that's one side. The other side is, right, that you've got all these Republican senators out there right now that said during Merrick Garland, we shouldn't be, uh, you know, um, passing a Supreme Court nominee in the last year. So everybody, I'm just saying this, everybody's being hypocritical. 
Right. And what you need to know about politics, which is the business I've been in for 24 years now, almost 25, Jesus, is that I feel sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, trust me, guys. I'm exhausted. Um, is that it's war. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just pure war. And 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 that and that's true, right? Whether we like it or not. That's but right. it's sort of like is cynical also in that, you know, I always feel like if 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 you're gonna just kind of scrape the bottom of evil on both sides and we're all just thinking what's the lesser of two evils, you're still left with evil. Correct. There's no way to be kind of like there's no way to really take the high ground as a leader, it seems. You can't have a, a Marcus Aurelius. No, and this is why I was kind of interested in uh, what the Weinstein brothers were doing, not Harvey, but uh, Eric Weinstein and, oh, I can't think of his brother's name. Brett Weinstein, uh, yeah. Yeah, Brett. Uh, they were trying to like form some kind of unity party. And I'm, yeah. I you know, I reached out to, to them. I was like, well, tell me more about this. And I, I didn't hear back, but I'm, uh, I was kind of curious about it. I think the you know, if Andrew Yang was more than, in, like, ran as an independent more than a Democrat, I, I do think we are moving into a world where the party, where, the you know, there's just been a nuclear bomb that's gone off in both parties and people are going to kind of move into other choices. And again, if you see a secession um, with different governments or you could see where the party system gets, you know, completely disjointed. Uh, over time, like you know, uh, it looks more traditional, like what's happening in, in some of the European parties, where there's t ten parties, um, and this, you know, they have to build coalitions within the parties in order to get majority of control of government. So, um, I, you're right. I don't disagree with that. I think we are heading into a different model over the next ten years, um, and we'll see what happens. But right now, when you're talking about the Supreme Court, just to go back to it. I mean, the bottom line, it's a war on both sides and both sides are all are hypocrites. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, no. And so, so, okay. So we've got these kind of known unknowns, uh, right now things are getting down to the wire. Like depending on what data you look at, it's sort of like up in the air and for the first time in a while, cause I think Biden since May, June has been solidly in the lead and now things since the republican convention it seems like now things are a little up in the air and we still don't know about you know how silent is is are, are the silent voters and uh what do you think i mean some republican senators don't want to vote for a, a yep. supreme court nominee yep. what, what do you personally i kind of think there's nothing going to happen before january 20th on the uh, supreme it's going to be side. really hard i think enough republican senators are going to say they're not going to do it the other is um the arizona u.s senate race will probably be won uh, by Mark Kelly, the astronaut, who's a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And it's a special election uh, because Martha McSally, the senator now, was appointed. And that new senator will be sworn in on November 30th. So if a lame duck is going to happen, you're already going to – Republicans will already lose a seat by, the, by November 30th. So you've got Susan Collins that has already come out and said, I'm not voting on this. You have Lisa Murkowski who's said, I'm not voting on this. Um, and Mitt and so Romney probably won't. Mitt Romney is one that they're waiting on right now. This maybe by the time this airs, he will have come out and, and announced. Um, and you know, you've got a couple other senators that are uh, nervous. Either way, Republican senators. So uh, I think the prediction would probably be that it does not get passed. But I will say, there's a wild card, and the wild card is uh, whether you hate him or whether you love him, 
Mitch McConnell is a great administer of his party and his leadership and of the majority. And if that guy wants to get something through, it's a better chance than not that he can get it through. Um, I don't know if he can get it all the way through on this one, but I wouldn't count Mitch McConnell out as an administrator in this moment. Yeah, that's interesting because he, he is kind of delaying, I don't know, their vacations or whatever, or their, or their no, their, sorry, their ability to campaign in their home states. He's calling them all back to Washington. So, and he did succeed in doing that. Yeah. So the only okay. other, the only other thing I would watch for on the, you know, on the known unknowns, right, is Biden's strategy, which has worked for the last six months, is put him in the basement, and you know, put him. Is on that true? Is that like that's what? Yeah, the he media has not had many public is. appearances. Right. Okay. Uh, very few public appearances. Um, and like this weekend, um, they he had a public appearance and they cut off all access at eight thirty in the morning, and they, he wasn't around for the rest of the day. Like you're like less than fifty days to go, and your candidate literally stops campaigning at eight thirty in the morning. I know that sounds Why are they doing very, that? very judgmental. I don't. I can't guess. I mean, the, everybody know, assumes that it's something, but um, I don't know. So the question is, he has to get out there more. He's going to have to debate late into the night when all of us get tired sometimes late into the night. And so what happens from that standpoint? Are there more gaps? You know, just this weekend, he said 200 million Americans uh, had died from the coronavirus. This is like the third time he's done that. Uh, he's reading everything from a teleprompter. And I know, again, I admit, I'm center-right. I'm more Republican than Democrat. I know that this comes off bias. I'm telling you, like, it's an unknown, it's a known unknown, is when he doesn't have to have a teleprompter and he has to be out there campaigning the last 30 days, what happens that either scares the last remaining swing voters into saying, either they're going to say he's the sage uh, old grandfather that we need in this moment, or they're going to say, I don't, I don't know if that's who we should have. And I know Trump is not who I, you know, not my first choice, but I'm going to vote for Trump anyway. And I, I really think that's another big aspect that very few, pe very few people in the media are talking about, but I believe all the voters are thinking about right now. Now are, is the media or, or anybody, are they, is Biden, I mean, I'm willing to believe Biden's not as, as bad as they say, uh, in the sense that, you know, in a debate where he has to be without a teleprompter and so on, I, I do think he's probably could hold his own more than people realize. I think it's too easy to say, oh, the guy's just gone. He, he was fine in the debates in the primaries enough to win the nomination. So I, I think that's kind of a, 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 an unknown as well is Biden's actual mental state. And history will tell you that the candidate, the presidential candidate with this le the smallest expectations usually wins the debates. And uh, Biden- Yeah, 1960, Biden, nobody yeah. thought JFK versus Nixon. Everybody right. thought Nixon, who was vice president for eight years, and JFK was like this little kid, they thought. Nobody thought JFK would win those debates. And don't forget, just in our lifetime, George W. Bush was told, everybody told him to be an idiot. He wiped the floor with gore. Uh, Mitt Romney scored big time on the first debate with Obama. Um, and, you know, so, you know, just remember that the, you know, usually the media loves to say uh, or loves to, you know, put a, a narrative out that, oh, he's going to be horrible at the debates and before the debates and afterwards. It's he scored, he won. Like, that's the, the, 
the way the stories are usually written. So that could be something that really does help Biden. If he just holds his own, he doesn't have any gas, he is going to come out looking, and the media will go crazy saying he's the big winner of the debates. So how, if you were advising Trump, how would you kind of try to provoke a gaffe? Well, I would bring up all of his gas, right? Over and over again. You said 200 million people three different times have died of the coronavirus. Like, wh why do you keep saying this? You know, like, and then it, he's either going to say, uh, I misspoke, I made a mistake, which makes him look bad. Or, you know, he's going to call, you know, Donald trying to do Like, there's nowhere to go by just continuing to point out the gaps of Biden, right? Um, and also, I mean, they focused on uh, his record. I don't know if it's landed as much. I think the one issue that's really going to get Biden is, um, you know, is he fit for office? And the question is, is how long does he serve if he wins? And I don't know if you can bring that. I don't know what that second part I just said, if that gets you anything. Um, but I do think the fit for office does. I guess what, um, like, just thinking about it, if I was in the game, I, I, instead of saying specifically that, I would say, look, you picked a VP candidate who's already calling it the Harris administration. Why is that? So why is she assuming it's her administration? Now, and again, I'm not... I'm not advocating anybody do anything, but if I was a strategist here, I would bring that up as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But then again, maybe not because maybe people want a Harrison. Like a lot of people, like you said, are they're 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 not voting for Biden; they're voting for not Republican. So right. they might not care about that issue. Right. So I, I listen. Ultimately, James, I'm going to tell you this: anybody that's predicting and says I know what's going to happen today, I just I think that's fraudulent. Right. I, I'm not saying do. that they couldn't be right in six weeks. I'm not saying that. They could be right in six weeks. But there are so many factors that are in play still. Everything is changing day to day. Don't forget, this is another one we haven't even talked about. 60 million Americans have already requested an early vote ballot. They've requested it. So that's different from the mail-in. That's like the absentee it could, ballot. It's a, it's a combination of all of it. Mm-hmm. We had 137 million Americans vote in 2016 for president. We're talking 60 million have already requested some sort of mail-in early vote ballot. That's incredible. In Florida, I think the number is four and a half million. And do you, do you think that is going to be, as Trump claims, fraudulent? Or do you think it's going to actually just lead to, you know, more votes? Or what, what do you think is the implication of this? <laughs> The, the, that's all a big partisan media narrative. Um, I think in a pandemic, people have the right, should have the right and easier access to vote. And so um, do I think there could be fraud? Maybe, I don't know. There's not really precedent of it. Do I think the post office could royally screw up everything? Yeah, probably feel more inclined to believe that than fraud. Um, and so do I think it's also safe to vote in person? Yeah. But if people don't feel safe to vote in person, they should have other options. So I'm sort of neutral in this. I've just stayed out of it because none of that, none of it makes sense. And everybody is picking a side based on who they want to win the presidency. And I just don't think any of the arguments make much sense. Yeah. Other yeah. than the post office is inept. Yeah. By right. the, way, the post office the way, all of a sudden is one of the most popular federal government offices, right? 
Yeah, no one's um, ever thought they were F. No, no one. But now it's like Trump versus Biden. So we, I got to choose a side. Well, I'm for the post office and I'm against the post office. So there well, you go. Well, and I, I think there is an easy solution for the post office, which is that instead of running the stimulus check, let's say there's another round of stimulus checks, instead of running them through banks and letting the banks get all those fees, run them through the post office and let the post office pick up some fees. So uh, that, then you save the post office o- overnight instead of just feeding profits <laughs> to the banks. There you go. But- I don't even know if that's a good strategy for the economy, but that would save the post office. But, um, and then what do you think? Who's going to win the Senate? All right. So on the Senate side. I want it, answers. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. I worked on it. Um, I mean, we're involved in a lot of that stuff too, but I, I would look at it like this right now. I see, I see it at forty nine forty seven, And so you've got four races that I think will decide the Senate. I think there are, uh, Maine, which is Susan Collins, North Carolina, which is Tom Tillis, uh, Iowa, uh, which is jo- uh, Joni Ernst, and then uh, the, this is th- maybe three and a half, I think. And I'm, for full disclosure, we're working on the Republican side of the New Mexico state, uh, New Mexico race. But our internal numbers look like surprisingly good right now. We're within the margin of error of winning. So, um, and no one's reporting on it. So uh, I think it's it's a it's a good shot, even though it's a Democrat state. But I think it really the three main ones are Maine, North Carolina, and Iowa. And so um, Republicans really only need to win one. If Trump wins, they only need to win one more between Iowa and North Carolina and Maine. Uh, if Trump were to lose, you got the, the tiebreaker in the Senate is the vice president. So you need to win two out of three. So it's um, and you know. Uh, these are all very – there's so many factors that will decide Iowa, North Carolina, and Maine in the next few weeks. Um, I don't have those answers right now. I can tell you what it looks like right now, but it, that will change. It will all change so much in the next few weeks. Yeah, like what does Maine look like right now? Um, that's Susan Collins, and you know she's longtime uh, senator there, and it's basically even. I mean all of these are basically even right now. Maybe each one of those has a slight, um, uh, slight way, slightly more Democratic than Republican. But again, uh, intensity, what happens in the last few weeks, what breaks in the last moment. Uh, if Trump were to win North Carolina but get crushed in Maine, that's going to help Tom Tillis, who's the incumbent in North Carolina, and it'll really hurt Susan Collins. Um, or, you know, like Iowa is a strong, not a strong, it's a real, it, Trump will probably win Iowa. It looks really good. Does Johnny Ernst, who's the incumbent, uh, piggyback on that for, you know, and see, and, and win that race. So I could see Republicans winning two of the three. They need two of the three. Um, and then if New Mexico were to fall for Republicans, that would be a bonus. Yeah. Right now it's uh, heavily in the blue camp, uh, New Mexico. Oh yeah, yeah. But that's. I mean, look. I, I, you know, take this for what it's worth. You know, but our internal numbers have it uh, within a few points, and it shouldn't be that close. But uh, we have a great candidate working in there. And then, okay, so let's let's talk. Is are you seeing people talk about secession? I, I'm reading it everywhere. I feel like now, like it's weird. In the last few weeks, um, I'm reading more and more. More in the camp of civil war, less in secession. But I, I don't see civil war because I don't see um, anybody picking up a gun and shooting at 
it's not like a brother versus brother situation like 1861. Agreed. I don't think it's going to look like that. I just don't know what, what it's going to look like. We're, I, it's not okay, 1861. But, so we're in a technological age. So the Civil War may be brought on by factors we just don't know yet. See, see if I were to lay out a, the most likely path. Yeah, tell and, me what you think. I, I would say Texas is the first to speak. Let's say, I mean, it could happen if no matter who wins, but let's just say Biden wins, which is he's the he's the winner in a lot of polls. Uh, I could see Texas saying, listen, we're cool, everybody. We're going to back off a little bit. We're going to be our own country, but we'll do a trade deal with all of you other states and we'll pay, uh, we'll donate every year to a um, military that, you know, a basic military to, to, to protect all the borders of these United States and any states that want to join us, you're happy to plug into our electric grid because Texas has their own electric grid. So that's why they would be first. Uh, and I talked about this with Tucker Max on, on my podcast with him and, 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 (laughs) and, and I would say, um, no, everyone will say, okay, it's, it's, it's within, by the way, it's constitutionally fine. If states secede, they're allowed to do that in the constitution. So there doesn't have to be bloodshed. And if Texas says, yeah, we'll give you like, you know, 50 billion a year to do what you want and don't worry about it. And then we'll take care of our own laws and everybody's allowed to come here and you don't need a passport. And it'll be more, again, like a loose confederation as opposed to we're going to blindly follow every federal federal rule. So and then, only, then other states will follow. Yeah, on, on I agree. Side. I think it, all you need is one and, oh, it's game on at that point. I would look at this differently. I don't know if Texas would be the first state because it is trending more uh, it you know it used to be heavily Republican. It has trended more Democrat over the years. So you're going to have to figure out a majority that wants that, and that's going to be a hard majority to get. I would tell you that if Trump wins on election day, I would then say California, California would be the first one out the gate because it is so far left and everything is controlled. Everything is controlled now. Again, Republicans control Texas. Don't get me wrong, but it's not to the same level that California does. Um, yeah, I guess you could see New York, but I could also see New York being more moderate in that approach. I, I think California, for me, that's if Trump wins. If Trump loses, California won't go anywhere. So, And then you could see Texas. So I think it maybe this is the, the compromise for us, James. If Trump loses, right, it's going to be Texas first. If Trump wins, it's going to be California first. Right. Now, the issue with California is, you know, California and New York are, have their hands out. They want federal bailouts. Now you can argue why should some states bail out California and not others, but then California could argue, hey, you know, our top earners paid a lot of the federal taxes that went to the rest of the country. So there's arguments on both sides. Is California economically able to secede and borrow money um, on their own and and so on? Because again, no, no state has their, can print money. Only the federal government can. Only the Federal Reserve can. I don't think states are going to go as far as to print their own currency so fast. So is California able to secede and work out their debt issues? Yeah, and, they got a lot of survive? debt, but they're also what, one of the top 20 largest economies in the world, just the state itself. Right. So if they divert some of their federal taxes inwards, then they could start borrowing money more and, and fight their way out of their deficit. Maybe. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how it's going to look. I just know when I look at all of the data, it just like it, it takes your breath away. And then you look at all the divisions, and you look at people that are so locked in. And the funny thing is, what's the data point that suggests secession the most? I, 
the economy is going, uh, people, the economy could go bust, right? You have a 30% of Americans that are doing really well or not losing anything right now. You have 70% of Americans that are struggling uh, to pay bills or very, very concerned. If that number, right, if after the election, whoever wins, um, if the majority of the economy completely busts, I, I think it's the economic number because, um, look, there's no doubt that a lot of these riots were brought on by the lockdowns of the coronavirus. I'm not saying all of them were. People have legitimate reasons. Here I am finally qualifying, right? Um, but I think a lot of the lockdowns exacerbated the situation. And then yeah. you have this massive economic downturn. And I believe when you've got um, the coronavirus, you've got civil unrest, and the last tipping point would be the economic numbers. And we started this podcast by going through all those economic numbers, and it just takes your breath away to know you may not see it, I may not feel it right now, but there's a lot of people out there, and there's going to be a lot of civil unrest if the economy goes bust after this election. And, I mean, it went bust, but again, it's not like you really feel uh, there are people that are in pain right now, but they're not rising up. And so what you would like to, what you would see is people that are rising up within those economic numbers, and everything shows that it's there, and except the stock market. And, you know, except some of the big tech companies and all of these other uh, businesses. So there's a disconnect. And if anything, if, if the majority decides to sort of wake up, especially in some of these key states, you could see that secession happen. Now, in, in, in terms of the stock market, are you seeing, I don't know if your data gets into this, but are you seeing people holding back from like individual investors, are they holding back from investing until there's some stability post election until we see where things are at, which could suggest that the stock market has, has room to grow. If individual investors have been holding out, are you seeing anything like that? Yeah. Oh, big time. I and mean, what you've seen the market come back fully in force to where it was pre pandemic levels is because the people that have money have kept investing. You've seen a lot of people pull out that were casual investors. Did they come back? I don't, they may, because of the election, but they may not because they don't have the money anymore. And we're in a need yeah. versus want economy. And right now they're like, I don't need to put my money at risk. It should be sitting in savings. I should have cash. Now, if, from a marketing point of view, if you're um, a, a business or a small business or a lifestyle business and, and, you, and this need versus want message is the strongest message right now, as compared to safety in March and things like that, how would you, how would you, switch your marketing message, particularly if you weren't a need? Like very few, few things are actual needs. Yeah, um, you've got to figure out, I, I mean, the first thing is, and th this is not going to answer, but it's going to answer it. Um, I, I would have to figure out what that specific customer uh, wants. Like, so if we work for a, or get, you know, organic food product company, um, they've got hundreds of thousands of customers. W what is driving them to make decisions right now? Where are they going online? Where are you going to place your ads from a targeting perspective? What is the message they want? And are you reducing – like we're trying to uh, reduce the risk across the board, reducing risk, making sure their brand is on point, making sure that it's, you know, it's easy to navigate their, their website. What is their messaging? It just depends. Um, with sort of the organic food companies, we're like it's all about immunity. You're, we're hitting more of the hot spots of the coronavirus where people are more concerned about – the health aspects of the coronavirus rather than marketplaces where people aren't as concerned. So, and you know, where I am in Florida, I'm in Northern Florida. 
nobody really gives a damn about the coronavirus. You walk to a restaurant, nobody's got masks on. I went to the gas station this weekend, nobody had masks on. I went into a, a, a hunting store this weekend, nobody had masks on. I feel like Northern Florida, though, is like really Southern Alabama. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And Southern Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the more, yeah, it's more Southern, the more North you go in Florida, the more Southern it is, right? So um, uh, I wouldn't be running organic food and product company uh, ads to that marketplace. Really, it, it's really interesting. It's really geographic right now. And we haven't seen this. You know, we've lived in a world is flat for so long, James. And oh, we're flat. You can, you know, as long as you market to the consumer and what they want. And it's, there is a lot of truth to that. But because of the coronavirus, we're seeing a lot of geographic targeting that has to take place. And a lot of targeting that we're not typically doing, like markets we're not going in. And we've done some case studies and we've seen like for that organic uh, food and product company, New York has been a robust marketplace for us. Uh, Whereas Dallas, Texas was not. And uh, when we went into Los Angeles, it was much more robust than when we went into Nashville, Tennessee. And typically buyers are going to buy for whatever reason, but because geographically things are safer in some places than others, it just makes more sense to have a smarter targeting plan, especially around some of those uh, products and services that don't feel need. Right. So, so um, I guess final, final thing, like if you were to, so, so we've got need versus want is kind of this overall message. We have these known unknowns, which is, is there a last minute scandal? Uh, What's the fallout from Ruth Bader Ginsburg? What happens in the debates? Uh, Vaccine vaccine, uh, violence, I suppose, uh, 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 where exactly is the economy or perceptions of it on November 3rd? And um, what's, if if you were to make a gut guess, I mean, I know you, which way you lean, but like, just really like deep down, what's, what's your gut? Look, the election is going to be decided by a few states and a few thousand voters. It's not being decided by the 137 to 150 million people that vote. It's going to be decided by, you know, what was it? I think between Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin was devoted. It was like 70,000 votes decided the election in 2016. And so it's just a fall. Like my guess is all it is is a guess. What's the effect of the? Oh, sorry. So go go ahead. So the, uh, how that breaks in the next six weeks is is totally a guess. Like I I just laid out. Like yes, there is sort of a secret vote for Trump. I'd add three points maximum onto it, whatever you're seeing right now. If you're seeing a poll in Pennsylvania or Florida, I'd say eh, I'm going to add three points onto that, and then I would look at it and say it. So here's how I think. I think right now, my guess, my best guess, and and this is going to be great. But I think uh, the way I mapped it out was at this point, Trump's at 268 electoral votes, Biden's at 217. The undecided states left to go would be Arizona, Nevada, which uh, Arizona, Nevada have leans to Biden right now. Minnesota, lean to Biden. Wisconsin, lean to Biden. Michigan, lean to Biden. And of course, of course all those puts him significantly, significantly above 270. ahead, right? I think yeah. Trump wins Florida and North Carolina. I think Trump pulls out Pennsylvania. And and then it comes down to Trump has to win one state, Arizona, Nevada, Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Michigan. Just one of those, he wins the presidency. If Biden runs the table, he wins the presidency. The unknown right now is what happens in the next six weeks with those states. And trying to tell you right now what's going to happen is, is a total lie because I don't know. 
What are you What are you doing on uh, election night? Tracking my races. <laughs> Wait, do you wanna Do you wanna do anything live on election night? Sure, um, let's do it. All right, that'll that'll be fun. Maybe we can get people to tune in. I mean, there's going to be interesting stuff happening as early as 8 p.m. probably on election night. So if you're if you're not committed to <laughs> or to yeah, it, we MSNBC may not. You know, it could anything. be uh, 18 months later, and we're still talking about who's going to win. <laughs> if it if it goes longer than three days, first thing that's going to happen is the stock market will crack. And then you're going to start seeing there you go. That's huge the, that's the econ- economic. That's the secession. That's the start of the secession. If, if the stock market goes, that's the one thing holding up everything right now. I mean, Bush Gore, the stock market fell eight and a half percent between um, the, the election day and the time a winner was called. So, you know, I don't remember be that because time. I was buried in Jacksonville, Florida, trying to count chads and ballots. So uh, yeah, I don't, you, rem- you I don't right remember the what the market did during that time because I was. Uh, I, I, was, I do because I was going broke. I was trying to referee uh, an insane recount. And then, and then I think though, after three or four days, what you're going to have start to happen is massive protests, and I think people are going to get more polarized. And I think the longer there's no winner, the longer there won't be a winner because people are going to be afraid to. People are going to not know where this is going, and yeah. so people will be afraid to take a stance at some point, even at a political level, at a high up political level. So everybody's predicting this chaos after the election and typically what i usually see is if there's everybody that has this everybody's predicting the chaos then it may be a very clean election night <laughs> you're right and you know the other thing is i get a little disturbed when i see you know like nancy pelosi like advises yeah. biden to uh, uh not concede well it's probably pretty clear to biden that why would nancy pelosi do that well january 20th there's a, there's several paths where she's the president if if nobody oh, concedes. Oh, absolutely. So and there's also, it, you know, a lot of this depends on the majorities in the state legislature, legislatures, because they will represent the House of Representatives. Right now, Republicans control 26 uh, of the of the legislatures. So what happens if one legislature falls and it's a 25-25 tie? And the only way to determine who has the majority of the state legislatures is one small state legislative race in Oklahoma that's decided by like two votes. Uh, the other is the like I, I love all this chaos. By the way, uh, the other is there are sixty four possible combinations that would result in a two sixty nine two sixty nine tie in the electoral college. Well, and what I'm worried about is <laughs> I mean, uh, is anything more twenty twenty than like what we're going through right now? Like it's everything. Like of course I say maybe there won't be chaos, but this is twenty twenty. So I just bank on it. Right. Like this is. This is like a bigger season finale for 2020 than even if there were aliens discovered on another planet. There, I thought there were. Like if, uh, what? Right. So that's not even such a big season finale. That's like the the penultimate episode. Right. But the real ultimate episode is uh, uh, secession scenarios. But uh, what I get worried about is that again, um, not so much a tie in the electoral vote, but. Um, two electoral counts. So you have the governor of Florida or, or whatever swing state, the governor of Pennsylvania send in one slate of legislator, uh, of electors and the Supreme Court send in another slate. And so you have actual two winners and there's no real constitutional precedent. It doesn't necessarily go to the house. It doesn't necessarily go to the courts. Like, I think it's a big unknown. Like, like if there's no winner, the constitution decides what happens. But if both sides are claiming a winner, there's no, 
you don't know what happens. There's right, no I real believe, law. Then Pelosi is acting president, and she can hold that title with the full powers of the presidency for I, indefinitely. I think, but I know I think she only becomes acting president if there is no Correct. winner, right. and I think the the concept of no winner is vague. So so there's no winner if the Senate doesn't read off a winner. But there is, but the Senate is controlled by the Republicans, and Mike Pence but I is believe the tiebreaker. It come, now again, now I'm just speculating because I can't remember. But I believe it also will be decided by the new Senate, not the old Senate. Oh, I don't know. I I think I thought it was the old Man, Senate, but I, I, I could be wrong. I, you know what? Now because just... you know what? I think it's read off like January eighth, something like that. Um, like Al Gore had to declare Bush the winner in two thousand. Um, and there was, uh, you know, in addition to, uh, Florida, I believe Hawaii might've been in question or no, New Hawaii Mexico, was in question. New Mexico. Oh, New Mexico. Yeah, I yeah, was and, in New and, Mexico, uh, the six weeks prior to election day in 2000. And I think we lost that state by less than six or 700 votes. Um, wow. yeah, I'm aware. Yeah, and, and in 1960, and then I went to Florida uh, for the recount. Yeah, in 1960, it was it was in 1960 where Hawaii accidentally sent two both the Democrat and Republican electors. It was only three, and Nixon, which it was also and Nixon was also legally contesting the race. Most people don't know that, um, but Nixon had to declare in the Senate that the Hawaii electors that were the Democrat electors were the were the winning electors. Mm. So you know. Back then, things were a little bit more. I don't want to say they were civilized because they everybody hated everybody else, but at the very least, they were, you know, uh, in favor of you know fa uh, easy transition of government. Now it's not going to be so easy. What's your prediction then? I honestly don't have one. And and here's the other thing too: we're we're discounting the fact that the the third parties will take millions of votes. Like libertarians got five million votes in 2016. Yeah, but I know you had just had that candidate on, but Gary Johnson was a governor uh, of New Mexico. Yeah, and he had I actually the other guy. campaigned with him in 2000, by the way. Um, uh, and I spent a lot of time with him. Very interesting guy. I don't know if you've ever had him on your show, but uh, yeah. like former triathlete and all this stuff. Anyway, um, but my, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Kanye was the shot that to get sort of a third party candidate that would take some votes, but he just can't get on ballots where he needs to get on in some of these key states. So you're, you're no, you're right. I mean, again, oh, I have the numbers too. Um, in 2016, 128.8 million voted for Hillary and Trump and 137 million total voted. So you're talking about eight and a half million votes, right? But you're right. Maybe it's 5 million. I don't think it's going to be as large as it was four years ago. Yeah, and I mean, libertarians probably draw from Republicans and, you know, Kanye and the Green Party, right. which is Howie something, Howie Hawks, uh, uh, will probably draw from the Democrats, but who knows? Well, the only thing I say is the protest votes, right? You you maybe, and you remember, don't forget, in 16, you also had Evan McMullen on the ticket, um, who was trying to uh, mount the never Trump. Um, in position, and he was on a lot of ballots, maybe all of them, or most of them. And so uh, he got a lot of votes. Uh, Gary Gary Johnson got a lot of votes. These people were not going to get a lot of votes. They're not going to get the name, number of votes that were, that were cast in 16. That said, there could be a lot of people that say, I don't know who these people are, but I'm casting a protest vote. And that's what would drive that number up. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Phil, uh, this has been so enlightening. Come back on election night. Yeah, let's, let's do, do election this on night. election I, I night. I'll do that, man. That'd be fun. I mean, and if MSNBC asks you to come on, then no problem. But uh, maybe we you can go you in know, and out here. I've kind of quit uh, as a choice going on the sh- on the cable news networks over the last year. Um, been asked plenty of times. There are a couple of them I would absolutely do um, if it worked out. But for the most part, this goes back to my uh, the right side of history. Um, I I don't want to be someone on a, a network where I just don't think they're helping uh, the society. So I'm not no white knight in, by any shape or form, but I've, I've kind of made that choice recently. I love it. And I agree with that choice incredibly just by seeing how watching news affected my personality even in the past few months. But Phil, thanks again. This is like your fifth time on the podcast. Always informative. Uh, let me know if there's any other new data that you start seeing, but uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, James. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.